Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. We are bringing 24 hours a day of uplifting conversation and faithful Catholic teaching to all of you. And I just want to let you know that we're a listener-supported apostolate. We count on good folks like you to keep us up and running, and you can help by going to www.veritascatholic.com. Today on Let Me Be Frank, Bishop Frank will talk about the seminaries we have here in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and then about his own priesthood between his ordination and his episcopacy. Hey all, welcome back to Bishop Frank Caggiano's show. This is Let Me Be Frank. I'm Steve Lee, the head of Veritas Catholic Network, and it is my great pleasure to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, it's great to be with you as always. Thanks, Ooh. Excellency. We have much to talk about. Yes, so much happening. And before we get into our, our normal topic for today, you know, since our last show, there have mm-hmm. been uh, even more attacks on Catholic churches, both here mm-hmm. in the States, even close to us in, in New Haven, and um, around the world. And I'm sad to say that probably by the time this episode airs, we'll have even more. Mm-hmm. Um, any, I know thoughts? you have a lot of thoughts. Yes, you have a lot of thoughts on this, I'm sure. We, we spoke about it last time, I think. Yes. Um, the church never invites persecution. But when it comes, it has to be an occasion of purification and renewal. It has to be an occasion where we are reminded of what the Lord did for us and what we are ready to give for, for him and for our neighbor. Um, so I think it is inevitable that some of this will occur in a time of great confusion and challenge and doubt because there are vying forces at play trying to win the upper hand. And the spiritual realm is very agitated. And I can see signs of the, of the presence of evil at work in many different aspects of society, and many different aspects of even church life. And a number of pastors have spoken to me about the need for them, they felt the need to increase their prayers of deliverance Mm. Right, with some of their people. Um, now, again, as I said before, that could be an occasion where we could become fearful, which is the option I would highly recommend we not follow. Or it could be a sign of encouragement insofar as if the, if the, if the demons or the father of evil is agitated and therefore is attacking the church, then maybe we are moving in the right direction in some regards. Yeah. That what they see, they do not like. And therefore, they try to mute or, or render into some sort of fearful state or retreat. So I would view this as an encouragement to keep doing what we're doing and, and, and purifying the church, strengthening our own personal lives of faith, reaching out to our neighbor in mercy and charity, which is what the Lord asks, and move on, right? And just move on. Yeah. And trust in the Lord's great goodness for all of us. Yes. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Excellency. Um, so as we move on to our uh, main topic for today, you, know, you can tell us about what's happening with the seminaries and seminarians in our diocese. And um, mm-hmm. let's start with uh, St. John Fisher. Yeah. Uh, 
allow me just to, to remind our listeners that here in the diocese, we have two seminaries. We have, um, on the collegiate level, we have St. John Fisher. And it really is, in many ways, a house of formation where men, young, and sometimes not that young, will come either to be formed in anticipation of entering the major seminary when they are college age, or if they are older and already have a college degree, or if they certainly have business experience, come to, again, prepare themselves for the major seminary, but they do it in a a way that we would call a pre-theologate formation. That is, that they need the required philosophical training before they go to the seminary. Because if you don't have the philosophical training, theology would not make sense, systematically Mm -hmm. would not make sense. Mm -hmm. So they don't really come for a degree, they come for formation, and they usually stay for two years. And the the pillars of formation, so there's the human formation, pastoral, there's the academic, there's the the spiritual, that very much is the heart of what we do um, at St. John Fisher. Then we have Redemptoris Mater Seminary, which is a diocesan missionary seminary, which means that the young men who are in that seminary are from the neo-catechumenal way, which was born more than 50 years ago in the slums of Madrid by a priest and two lay people. And it recognizes the need to go into the peripheries to evangelize people. So in many ways, it anticipated a lot of what St. John Paul II and Pope Benedict and Pope Francis have been talking about right, for the last 35 years. Right. And these young men, um, what they do is they are trained the same way our diocesan priests who are in St. John Fisher, soon to be diocesan priests, please by into St. John Fisher, same pillars, same formation, but with a particular emphasis that they are at the disposal of the diocesan bishop to go anywhere in the world in mission, not just in the diocese, although there'll always be diocesan priests. Okay. So in many ways, the, the two seminaries complement each other. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so um, is there a difference? Well, let's, uh, let me, let me ask, start by asking the, the traditional uh, diocesan seminary, St. John Fisher. Mm-hmm. Um, what is how long is the uh, how long is the process of formation? How how long is the seminary? All right. So the, for um, for what we would call the traditional structure, a man needs his college degree. He needs to have the proper philosophical training. He needs to have the basic formation, and then he goes to the theologate, and the theologate is graduate level studies which could be four or five years in length, depending on what theologate you go to. Because if it's strictly academic, it's four years. Mm -hmm. If many seminaries add a year of pastoral assignment, it would be five years. Mm -hmm. Now what's interesting is that the new ratio, which is the fundamental instruction that governs seminary formation, was just issued by Rome not long ago. And it calls for a mandatory, what they call, propedeutic year. And the best way to describe it is a spirituality year that should precede the theologate. 
So before you begin your theological studies at the major seminary, Rome is mandating that every man who believes he has a vocation and wants to pursue it with the blessing of the diocese, with the blessing of the church, needs to do this one year of spiritual formation. And what is that recognizing? It is recognizing that Catholic culture in many countries in the West no longer exists in, at large. And by Catholic culture, I mean the opportunities over time when one grows up to learn through a parish or a neighborhood or your family or your community the traditions of the church, the spiritual traditions of the church, the devotional life of the church, the basic history of the church, the spiritual masters of the church, to learn how to pray, how to pray as an adult, to learn to sit in silence, to go on a seven or eight day retreat, a 30 day retreat in silence. See, all those elements that in the old days, of which I consider I'm a part of, <laughs> we kind of learned through osmosis, now there's gonna be a year dedicated solely for that. That's fantastic. So that adds one more year of formation yeah. to, to seminary formation. But the truth is, the amount of time is well worth it mm-hmm. if we're going to have what I've always described as happy, holy, and healthy priests with the emphasis on holy. Yes. If we're going to have that for our next generation and generation after, we have to invest in these men. So that's basically where, where we're at. So when they leave us and go to the theologate, whether that is, for example, St. Joseph's Seminary in Dunwoody or the North American College in Rome or St. John the Twenty-Third National Seminary in Massachusetts or wherever else they may go, our task here is to give them all the tools to be as successful as possible in the theologate where their formation continues. Yeah. And then I imagine as they're, I mean, the, the training and the preparation sounds incredible, um, as you would hope it would be for, uh, for men studying to become priests. Um, as they're going through this, uh, tell me about the the mentorship or the guidance from um, their either their rector or their spiritual directors to make sure that they, you know, do have a vocation? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Steve. Excellent question. Because the truth is, in any program, one could approach it as simply jumping through the hoops, mm-hmm. doing everything you need to do, keep your nose clean, get to the end, and then you have your quote-unquote prize. That is the attitude, unfortunately, that some priests have followed in formation and found themselves ill-equipped, or even worse, fell into great trouble because they didn't truly apply from the heart the formation that was being given to them. So how do you ensure that does not happen? Well, there is no 100% guarantee it does not happen because you can't really enter into someone's heart. But proper spiritual direction, proper mentoring, which is all accompaniment, gives those who are in formation, those in charge of formation, an opportunity to see whether or not there is a real engagement in the program. 
that there is a heartfelt attempt to be formed, to be changed, even to be converted. See, when I was in the seminary a million years ago, it was, the attitude was, uh, don't get into trouble because they'll throw you out. <laughs> and of course, no one wants to be thrown out. Right. But that created an environment that was not truly conducive to formation. So I think the proper response would be, you are here because God chose you. You and I both know you are not perfect. You have faults, you will have failings, you will have limitations. If God has called you, you should be A, encouraged, he will give you the grace to respond, and B, he has given you both his grace and your human abilities to be the best you could be responding yes to the call. Therefore, you have nothing to be afraid of to admit faults and failings. We are here to help you to overcome them and to grow in true holiness and health. Hmm. So I am, uh, that's the sense I have now. Of course, it's not perfect in the seminaries too because of our human nature. But the attempt, I, uh, my sense is, is to create an environment where men, young men, middle-aged men, whatever age men, could look themselves in the mirror and be honest about both strengths that are gifts that need to be developed and weaknesses that need to be dealt with and a spiritual life that needs to mature and continue to mature until they die. Yeah. It's sacred work, hard work. Yes. And quite frankly, um, you don't learn it. A good formator is almost born with the gifts to be a good formator because you need a spirit of empathy you need a spirit of intuition. You need yourself to be a person who can discern signs and spirits. You need to be self-confident in your own weaknesses and tell the truth. Now, put all those qualities together in one single person, you, you, have, you would have a great formator. Yes. And some of that you don't learn some of that is really a gift from God, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, with the two seminaries here in our diocese, they're both diocesan. One is mm -hmm. uh, associated with a, a movement. Mm -hmm. um, is there, how much coordination, and there might not be any, how much coordination or cooperation is there between the two seminaries? Mm-hmm. There has been significant okay. to the betterment of both. Because when, the, when the, we were given the Redemptorist Martyr Seminary, and when I say we're given is because the movement itself, um, after a diocesan bishop asks, uh, grants the creation of the seminary. So there's, at this point, over 100 of them around the world. Wow. And when they came, most people did not know the neocatechumenal way. And there are some who are not comfortable with the way because their liturgical expression is different. Not very different, but there are differences mm -hmm. that um, Pope Benedict approved. So they have their own statutes and I wanted and still continue to desire 
to introduce the neocatechumenal way into the larger life of the diocese. Not so that people would say, I want to become part of the movement. That's not the point. But the point is they recognize their unique individual charism. Mm-hmm. Right. So the men we have, of the 11 seminarians we have in Rita Torres Mater, only two are born in the United States. Wow. The rest come from other parts of the world. And the, many of them are children now of neocatechumenal families who have been in mission in different parts of the world. And some of their formation is very different from the formation that we would have in traditional seminaries. For example, some of them go out in mission around the world in what they call itinerancy as part of their formation for one or two years. So we have one seminarian now in the Pacific Islands who is catechizing among the islands and we'll, and we'll do that now for two years with a team that accompanies him so they can grow in spiritual life, in prayer, in, pastoral, in a pastoral heart of mission, then come back and complete his theological studies and be assigned in our diocese to the peripheries, you know, in those places where no one else would want to go or would be interested in going, or evangelizing um, in places where the faith is not predominant, or they may go somewhere else in the world to do and come back. Mm-hmm. So, so in many ways, I intended, and I think Father Czech and Father Mark have done a great job of bringing the men of the two houses together for sports, for recreation, for prayer, for days of prayer. So they, they've, they're growing to know each other and care for each other, recognizing the differences yeah. in the one church. And not to make it, not to oversimplify it, but for a young man here in, uh, in our diocese who is uh, trying to discern which seminary to go to, it sounds like the Redemptorist Mater is more, um, the, different, the main differences would be liturgical, but then also uh, if the young man feels called to serve in a, in a missionary territory. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, to enter into the Redemptorist Mater Seminary, um, you can't apply to it as you apply to St. John Fisher. The seminarians come from the worldwide convivenza they have once a year. And I've, I've been there a number mm-hmm. of times in a little town called Porto San Giorgio, in the Adriatic side of Italy, mid-country. And what is that? That is the gathering of all the young men in all the communities, the neocatechumenal communities around the world, who have expressed an interest in vocation to priesthood, have been accompanied by their communities, have begun their formation, and then come to this gathering where they will be assigned somewhere in the world to a seminary. And the only choice they have is to say yes or no. So we have young men from Colombia and Brazil and Italy and so many other countries who were raised in those countries, formed in those countries, discerned a vocation to priesthood, continued to be formed and accompanied, came to the Convivenza, and Kiko, who is one of the lay founders of the movement, in literally a lottery where your name is pulled out of a hat, will say, you, 
Frank Caggiano, are being assigned to Addis Ababa, the seminary in Ethiopia, do you accept the mandate? Mm, okay. And if you say no, he'll say, thank you very much, your name is set aside, and you are done. Okay. Okay. So it's a remarkable self-sacrifice. Yes. To be in these seminaries. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, there, you know, it's funny, I, I, a, a good priest friend of mine, you know, who's kind of, you know, uh, he always tests, will said to me, he said, well, Frank, so then how do we know, like, what, in the end, two, four, five, ten years down the road, uh, how many of these guys actually stay? And from what I, and I asked, and from what I can see from the data, it's far less than 1% wow. of the seminarians, once they make the choice, actually leave. Wow. Which is a remarkable, it's remarkable. Mm -hmm. yeah. But the other thing I want to mention is why the seminaries should learn from one another is there is a fraternity at Redemptoris Mater, which is a beautiful thing to see because most of these men are separated from their families by thousands of miles and they become family to one another. Right. Which will support them in their priestly life. Right. We need more vocations, though. Yes. So, and you've said uh, on a previous show that, you know, all of us should be encouraging young men to explore the priesthood. You know, we should mm -hmm. say something to good Catholic boys and young men that we know. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So we all have a part to play. Um, what, I, I wonder, is there, a, uh, is there a, a diocesan plan to foster more vocations here? Yes. Yes. I wouldn't say it's necessarily a plan because um, I think this is the work of the Spirit, but I created a vocational team, three priests, Father Chris Ford, Father Jose Abelardo Vasquez, and Father Paul Chet, who now work as a team for both recruitment and discernment and accompaniment of men um, who believe they may be called. See, what's different now is you have men in their 50s who may be widowers, with a business career discerning. You have young men who are 18, 19 years old who are discerning. You have men who are immigrants, mm -hmm. who are on fire with the faith and are discerning, whose immigration status may be irregular. And you have everything in between. So in the old days, when you would have events and everyone was at the same place and you could deal with them as a group, it's almost gone. Now, vocational accompaniment is literally person by person because mm. every person's story is somewhat different. So I yeah. put a team together to try to branch out. The other is, um, we, I am discerning with the pastors of the diocese, the idea of creating a year of the Eucharist, which I'll have more to talk about in the next few weeks. Mm. And we will, please God, inaugurate that in the fall, and a central piece of that will be vocational recruitment and discernment because without the priesthood, there is no Eucharist. Yeah. So let me just say this. When I was discerning priesthood and a young man now discerning priesthood, we are looking at very different worlds. Hmm. And the challenges we face now are far greater, far more obvious, and far more challenging than the ones when I discerned 40 years ago. 
including, where I'll put this, the gradual diminishment of the institutional aspect of the church. Hmm. And what I mean by that is, both for the pandemic, which has accelerated it, the demographic shift of Catholics out of New England and the Northeast, and the fact that we are living in a virtually secular society, the church needs to become missionary. Our task, first and foremost, is not to protect or maintain our institutions, meaning to spend all of our resources on buildings, but rather we need to find creative ways to spend our resources on the people of God. Yes. So you need a particular set of skills as a priest, as a young priest now, that um, perhaps when I was young were not as much in demand, including a creativity, an openness to evangelization, to be comfortable dealing with people, to be comfortable with change, but at the same time, respectful of the tradition, wanting to recapture the beauty of our faith and our liturgical life. So <laughs> priests in the future are really going to be men who are open to being molded by the spirit as the spirit sees fit. Yeah. For if we think times are changing now, the future is not going to be any different, at least the immediate future. And in the context of the abuse crisis, there are many factors in the world that are discouraging young men to answer a call to priesthood. And we have to recognize that. And how do we counter that? Right? I think yeah. that's going to be voices of holy priests who are going to accompany these young men to help them to understand that while there was grave sin in our midst, that is not who we are. Yes. So. It starts in our seminaries and uh, we've got, we got some good ones here. Mm -hmm. So, Excellency, we need to take a break. Uh, when we come back, love to hear about um, the earlier days of your priesthood. Yes, absolutely. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. We've been talking about the seminaries here in the Diocese of Bridgeport and, um, and the vocation of the priesthood and the very good priests that we've been ordaining uh, here for many years. And Bishop Frank, you told us in the past about your childhood in Brooklyn uh, many folks have watched you in your high-profile role as bishop here in Connecticut and even before. Um, I think a lot of folks would love to hear about the time between your ordination and your episcopacy. So you were ordained uh, in 1987 at Immaculate mm -hmm. Conception in Queens. Where mm -hmm. did you go from there? 
So after I was ordained, I was assigned to St. Agatha's Parish in Sunset Park. Now, being a diocesan bishop now, I'm always reminded that you have to choose wisely the first assignment of a newly ordained priest because it's very formative. Well, I don't think that message got to the chancery in Brooklyn, to be very no. honest, because the assignment I got, I went to, the people were marvelous, wonderful, and they loved me in the sense that they supported me and they were, my pastor was a disaster. Uh-oh. Oh my God, it was a disaster. I mean, how can I put this? His idea of pastoral work was to celebrate the early mass, put on what we used to call his racetrack shirt, go to Aqueduct oh. for the whole day, and come home. What? Yeah, just about every day. He used to smoke cigarettes and sit on the front steps waiting for the car to pick him up. And he, but, he, but, he, but there wasn't a malicious bone in his body. So he wasn't mean, but yeah. he wasn't really, and he always would tell me, you have to slow down, you're gonna kill yourself, you'll give yourself a heart attack when you're young. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, oh, I, I'd much rather burn out than rust out. So, right. <laughs> so, so this, and in a parish that was 80% Spanish speaking, and I, my, my Spanish was rudimentary at best. And, and, and so I was, it was, not, it was not easy at all. And the vicar for the area came to see me a year after my assignment. And he said to me, you really do need to be transferred. You need to go somewhere else. This, hmm. was, this was not a good idea. And of course, being the stubborn Italian that I am, I said to myself, I'm not leaving. I don't want to leave. I, I'm not going to declare defeat in my first right. assignment. Right. So we, we bantered about. He left. And then the call came. December 7th. Monsignor Lavin called me. He was the pre-secretary to Bishop McGovern. And he said to me, the bishop wants to see you. See me? He said, yes, he wants to see you. So we arranged the meeting, go down to the chancery. I'd never been in the bishop's office, never. Mm. And we're in this conference room. And unbeknownst to me, the conference room is like those rooms where the panel opens up and it's actually the door. So I'm sitting at the table and all of a sudden the, the wall opens in front of me. It was like a theophany. And bishop McGovern walks in and he sits down and he looks at me. And he says to me, Frank, I have a question to ask you. Yes, Bishop. He said, do you love me? And I looked at him. And I knew exactly what he meant. Mm -hmm. I said, of course, Bishop. I'll do anything you ask. I promised you obedience. He said, then you're going to leave the parish. And you're going to a new parish. He said, because you need to trust that I have your best interest in mind. Mm -hmm. And what a seminal moment for me in my formation, how suddenly my entire disposition changed because I understood that the request that was being made was not being made out of authority, was not being made you know, to force me to do something I didn't want. It really was an act of real concern, of real love on the part of the bishop in a newly ordained priest who was not in a parish where his gifts and talents could be used well. Right. So, that 
That gave me a true sense of what obedience really means. And I was too foolish and stubborn a few months before to understand it, but that helped me to understand it. So I left St. Agathus and went to St. Athanasius on Bay Parkway. I had a blast. I loved St. Ace. Huh. I loved St. Ace. Great school, lots of families, active parish. I mean, they active CYO, sports program that was gigantic. And after the first year, my pastor said to me, um, I want you to be the director of religious ed. I said, what? <laughs> I don't know how to do that. He said, you'll learn. And I did for two years. And let me tell you again how grace works. It introduced me into that whole world of religious education and faith formation, which has become a pillar of my ministry all to this day. Mm -hmm. And it just was remarkable what I learned that I didn't know from the seminary, because again, as a priest, you keep learning, right? Your ministry keeps maturing. I, I just had a marvelous time. I did. I was, I was just so happy. And yeah. then Bishop, uh, Bishop Daly, Bishop McGovern retired, and Bishop Daly appointed me to go to Rome. And from a two-year assignment, it became a five-year assignment. Oh, wow. So that I, I was both, I earned my license and doctorate in dogma at the Gregorian University. And I went with a heavy heart. That was the last thing I wanted to do. And all of my time in Rome was the best of times, the worst of times. The best of times because I was able to get to know my grandmother and my family that lived in Italy that I did not really know. Mm -hmm. I fell in love with the city of Rome and the history of the church that's associated yeah. with that city. And I'm a firm believer that every seminarian and priest should have some time in Rome just to acquaint ourselves with our own roots. Really, yeah. that's something you don't learn in a textbook. Yeah. But the worst of times was I was a priest without a parish. Hmm. So to be a student priest, unless you're careful, you regress back to being almost a seminarian. And I okay. caught myself doing that a few times. So I'd celebrate mass every day, I did every day, but many times I celebrated it with the angels, mm -hmm. which is different from being with the community of which you become a part. Sunday, I'd celebrate it with the other priests in the Casa, the Casa Santa Maria, which was great for fraternity, but it's different from the hustle and bustle of Sunday life where you meet people and you hear their issues and you follow up and it's, there's just an energy and a vibrancy in a parish that was missing in the seminary, Yeah. right? So when I came back, I was, is this too, too many stories? No, this is great. <laughs> this is... So, oh, I tell you a lot more. <laughs> then I went to St. Jude's in Canarsie. It was um, a parish that once was Italian American and had become uh, a parish was very much uh, Caribbean and Haitian, as well as English-speaking in the sense of the families that had remained in Canarsie. Canarsie had basically changed and become very much a diverse, racially and ethnically diverse community. It was there that I rediscovered the devotional life of the church. Hmm. The fervor that the people of that parish had for St. Jude, for the weekly novena and the annual novena, oftentimes brought tears to my eyes. 
Wow. I understood spiritually the intercession of the saints and intercession in general. And to hear the stories of so many people who came because of what seemingly looked to be hopeless cases of illness or disease or family breakup or unemployment or whatever it may, incarceration and so. So that's the, the period in my life when my heart went into training. Yeah. And to, to learn how to truly listen Right. And to recognize the spending time with people was not wasting time. That was pastoral service. Mm -hmm. And the stuff that was sitting on my desk could wait a bit mm -hmm. to get done. And I had a great pastor um, who was a great cook. Um, great staff. Um, again, just happy memories. I mean, nothing's perfect, but I really had happy memories. Tremendous yeah. memory. And both my parents were still alive at the time. It was just great. And then the crowning jewel of my ministry as a priest, I became a pastor <laughs> at St. Dominic's in Bensonhurst, a parish that was, even then, I'm, so I'm not sure now, but even then, was overwhelmingly Italian and Italian-American. And I am deeply grateful to the people of the parish and the people I work with on the staff who taught me how to be a pastor. Because I walked in at 38 years old and thinking I knew the world when I really had to relearn the whole thing. Not having any administrative background that now I'm suddenly in charge of this parish. And I remember one man in particular, Deacon Carlo Melace, who was such a good, good man. And one of the deacons assigned to the parish, <laughs> who must have read on my face a couple of weeks after I arrived. And he sat me down and he said, are you okay? <laughs> I said, Carlo, I have no idea how to do half this stuff. Personnel and the budgets and the baboo. I never learned any of that stuff. And he said to me, he said, I will help you. And he was the controller of a very large union. As honest as the day is long. I will never forget, I came down at the rectory. He had his office in the rectory, like mine was. And I came down one morning, and Codler was there early in the morning trying to reconcile three cents, three cents, not mm. one, not three cents in the budget. And he did not stop until he found the three cents. Wow. So particular, so honest was he. And mm. he basically took on the administration of the parish for me, keeping me involved all along. So you know what, Steve? I was one of the few pastors in Brooklyn that could devote himself almost, almost exclusively to the pastoral, liturgical, and spiritual life of the parish. I had landed in heaven. Wow. We had more processions, more devotions, more novenas than you could count. We had people singing up and down 20th Avenue. Huh. And in the midst of my ministry there, I started the Spanish language ministry and the Hispanic ministry, which began with 30 people. And when I left, there were almost 500 people at Spanish wow. language mass. Wow. Just the one mass. We had about 250 people in Italian mass. And then we had like, three other English masses. So we had 1,300, 1400 people coming to mass and we had no school. Yeah. 
So it, again, it was just tremendous, tremendous. <laughs> yeah. So then I guess my question then is, um, are seminarians today or should they be learning about budgeting and administration? Or is that, as you experienced at St. Dominic's, better to find, you know, uh, professional um, lay people who have a, a you know, specific set of skills that can kind of take that over for you? Both. Okay. Both. Because on one level, um, the, the, the lay faithful who are generous and, and, and are aching for ways to truly help in the mission of the church can provide a lot of that work for us. But we need to be able to speak with them in an intelligent way about what they're doing. Yeah. So you should learn it more, not so much that you should be doing it on your own, but that you can empower others to do it and do it in a way where you can support them and you understand what's going on. It, it becomes spiritually dangerous when a pastor reduces himself solely to an administrator. Right. Because you are first and foremost the spiritual father of a group of people. And therefore, if your spiritual life is not growing or not being nurtured, it e it's easy to fall into the trap of measuring your success by the things you buy, the things you change, the things you repair, right? Rather than the seeds you plant in people's hearts, which you may or may not see the results of. So, yes, you every priest should know that material. And in fact, now we have a, a formation program, an orientation program for young priests before they become pastors to teach them a lot of this. Oh, Personnel okay. issues, budgeting. They come for 12 sessions in one year okay. for a good portion of a morning or into, earth, into afternoon to do that. And they actually enjoy it very much. Oh. Just the legal world, it's become so complicated. Yeah. It's so many different mandates now. Yeah. Um, so, but not to do them, to find others to help you to do that. Yes. Hmm? So, Excellency, you were at uh, St. Dominic's. Is that, mm -hmm. were you there until 2006 when Pope Benedict sent word to you? Um, I was at St. Dominic's until 20, I believe it was 02 or 03. I think it was okay. 03. And then I became full-time director of the diaconate. What had happened was that while I was pastor of St. Dominic's, because I came back with my doctorate in dogma, the bishop asked me to be the academic dean of the diaconate program. So in addition to being pastor, I would go twice a week to help run the formation program for the men discerning the diaconate, which I also loved. Mm -hmm. Those men were great. Oh my gosh, what tremendous, and families, it was just tremendous. So. When he asked me to do it full time, then he relieved me of being pastor of St. Dominic's, which again, from the experience with Bishop McGovern, I accepted. I wasn't right. happy, but right. I accepted for the greater good. And then I became vicar for evangelization uh, and pastoral life. Then I became a bishop, auxiliary bishop. Then I became vicar general. Then the rest is history. So, so Pope Benedict XVI, named you Auxiliary Bishop of Brooklyn in 2006. How does, you know, I'm interested, how does that even happen? Does he send you a letter? Does he give you a phone call? 
What's oh, the, that's a great story. A great story. It's a great story. In those, it, it happens differently with different nuncios. But at that time, um, the, to become an auxiliary bishop, the mandate came to the diocesan bishop, who then met with the candidates to ask whether or not they accepted the mandate. Okay. In current usage, the nuncio directly calls the candidate to become auxiliary bishop, but that did not happen to me. So anyway, okay. so this is how the story goes. So Bishop, I lived with Bishop DeMarcio at the Episcopal residence on Clinton Avenue at that point, okay? Mm-hmm. And at breakfast, he, he made a very strange request. He said to me, uh, he said, tonight, uh, I would like to see you. But I'm thinking to myself, I'm sitting here with you now. <laughs> so, okay. And we made almost like an appointed time, which I thought was very odd. So I arrive home. Um, and uh, Kevin Sweeney, who is now Bishop Sweeney, mm-hmm. also lived in the house, mm-hmm. and the bishop ex- asked him to excuse us, so we're standing in the kitchen. And I think, what in the name of goodness? Then he said, let's go into the chapel, and I said, oh my God, I'm in trouble. Lord, <laughs> Lord forgive me my sins, save me from the fires of hell. So I walk in, and then, to boot, he says, close the doors. Oh boy. <sighs> <laughs> Close the door. So all the blood must have drained out of my face because the <laughs> bishop said to me, he said, no need to get excited. <laughs> and then he asked me. He said, I've been deputized to ask whether or not you would accept the mandate to become the auxiliary bishop, an auxiliary bishop of Brooklyn. And he said, before you respond, he said, if there's any reason that disqualifies you from accepting this mandate, you need not tell me but you need to decline. Right. And we chatted for about 40 minutes, you know, about the pontifical secret. Of course, I accepted the pontifical secret and all the rest. And then a few weeks later, it was announced, and then the ordination was on the 22nd of August, 2006, was the Queenship of Mary, which is beautiful, at, wow. a, at Our Lady of Angels Parish in, in Bay Ridge in Brooklyn. But those days, I was wondering to myself, all day, what was he talking about? <laughs> I was stunned. But then with the door, I said, holy mother. And of course, you never know. I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah. You probably, your mind is probably racing. We live. Oh, what did I, well, what did I do? <laughs> what did I do wrong? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. And being vicar general in Brooklyn was an interesting, an interesting experience because I was a priest of Brooklyn for my entire priesthood. Now I was the bishop's deputy. And, you know, and the guys still in many ways responded to me, interacted with me in a, in a somewhat familiar way, which helped with the administration of the diocese, okay? Because many of the priests were, felt free to tell me what they really thought. Mm-hmm. And not being the bishop, it's easy to do that because in the end, I'm not making any decisions. See, being a diocesan bishop, there is always that natural suspicion that if I'm truly honest, will he, will he get angry? Will he retaliate? Will he make a decision? Will he do something? You know, it's just, it's part of the human dynamic. But there mm-hmm. it was a very relaxed way of trying to implement what the bishop wanted. Hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Let's, uh, let's take one more break, Your Excellency. And then uh, when we come back, we will hear from you, the listeners. We need Catholic Radio because we need the voice of the church in the public forum. 
We live in a time that the secular voice dominates so thoroughly that we need to get that Catholic perspective out. Just as Fulton Sheen used radio and TV in the last century, we need to continue to use this means to announce the Catholic faith in the public forum. Welcome back, everybody, to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, this week we got an email from uh, Jennifer in Scarsdale. So you're, you're being listened to all over. We've had emails and questions come in from all over. This one's a little closer, but still outside your diocese, which is still cool. Uh, she said, uh, in the scriptures, the Sadducees ask Jesus about a woman who marries a man who dies. Then she marries his brother who dies, and again and again, until there are seven brothers she married. They ask Jesus whose wife she will be in heaven. And Jesus says, there is no marriage in heaven. But we also know that when a husband and wife get married, the two become one. Can you please explain this? No, it's a great question. Because um, it, it demands a nuance that we often... Um, take for granted. So, there are sacraments which the church teaches impart character that change fundamentally the person, or we say ontologically the person, for all eternity. Baptism is one of those. Confirmation is one of those. Holy orders for priesthood and the episcopacy are one of those. They are signified by a, an anointing with chrism that we are then sanctified to the office or to the state of life. And the church has always taught that those conditions and state of life do not change forever. So you can never be unbaptized or unconfirmed or unordained. Okay. Mm-hmm. That stands in contrast to the sacraments that do not impart character but do impart grace, that create a state of life those states of life end with the death. For they are to serve for the salvation of the person while they're on their earthly pilgrimage. So when you marry someone, if that person is the person truly God has chosen for you, that is your soulmate designed, chosen, given to you to help you to get to heaven. That's ultimately why marriage is such a beautiful sacrament. That person above all others is the person with whom you become one in life, in this life, so that you can both enter eternal life. So then the question is, when you are in eternal life then, are you still husband and wife? Well, the church, the Lord says clearly, no, not in the same way you would have been in this world, but that you are forever in love with each other in a way that would be even more profound than being a husband and wife is true Mm. because you are living in perfect glory. But that love would not be exclusive because in heaven there is no procreative aspect, Mm -hmm. right? Because the procreation, the children you have is in this life, not in the life to come. So it is a state in many ways which is more sublime, more beautiful, and obviously eternal in heaven between the two individuals than what we would have in marriage in this life. 
So I don't, the love does not end, it becomes ever more eternal and perfect. But some of the circumstances that exist on this side of death are different, yeah. right? Since there is no procreative peace in, he in heaven. So it's a subtle question, but it's an excellent question. And again, it is not that one is better than the other. Mm -mm. They are all geared towards salvation. Everything the Lord does and has given us and are geared towards our salvation in him. To put it bluntly, to get to heaven. That's what it's all about. Yes. So I hope that answers the question. Yeah, I think that's, that's great. It sheds a lot of light. I, I never thought about that stuff before. I mean, you hear those mm -hmm. in scripture, but uh, okay. Uh, if uh, any, any of you who are listening, if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in to us on the Veritas app, on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. And follow Bishop Frank Caggiano on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find Veritas Catholic Network there too. Thank you, uh, as always, Excellency, for another great week. Would you please uh, give us your blessing? I'd uh, be happy to. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We turn to our merciful Father to ask that you continue to bless and guide all that we do in mission and in family, to honor and glorify your holy name, and to lead your people to the gift of eternal life. Bless all our listeners during these days of summer. Keep them safe in your love. For we ask this in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, Steve, stay cool, my friend. It's hot out there. Thanks, I'll see you next week. Thanks. Okay, sounds great.